Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Welcome to the very first sermon, the very first service of 2021, uh, outside of being husband to Rachel and father to Ella Simon and Josie. Man, being a, one of the pastors here is the privilege of my life. If you're new to this space, uh, I'm the primary one who teaches, but I'm not the only one he, who teaches. So you're going to hear other people throughout the year. Uh, but we, teamwork is, is a big deal to us, but teamwork goes beyond just how we interact as pastors and leaders. It's, we think of the whole church as a team, everybody having a gift, everybody having a part to play, a calling and a purpose. And it is our desire to help you find that. So if you are new, Growth Track is your next step. We want to put into motion really the miracle that God wants to do in your life and, and to, to show you and to help you discover what God has for you. So growth track at two o'clock today. I hope that you are a part of that. If you are new with us, you have picked a fantastic day uh, to be with us. It's not just the start of a new year. It is also the start of a new teaching series that will last all the way through maybe sometime in April. And we are in the Sermon of the Mount. Uh, We are in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks from a mountainside. And we find this in Matthew 5 through 7. And so we're just going to go through it a section uh, at a time. And there are four stories, four records of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, called the Gospels, the four Gospels. And they each have a unique perspective. They each have unique attributes. And one of the unique attributes of Matthew is that he records these large sections of teachings. There are five of them. And this is the first of five. And, And he comes onto the scene proclaiming the kingdom, teaching the kingdom, demonstrating the kingdom. And he is now communicating. We're getting this concentrated teaching about what life looks like in the kingdom. In other words, what does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to be a part of the church? I don't know if you've ever wondered that question. Maybe you're on the outside, peeking over the fence, trying to figure out, okay, what is Christianity all about? Who is Jesus? What's the church? And um, Maybe you're not impressed with what you see. Uh, maybe what you see is typical. Maybe what you see looks like everything else. You know, I see the same grab for power. I see the same anger, the same outrage. The topics may be different, but the people are the same. Or maybe you're inside the church and uh, it feels empty to you. It feels uh, routine to you. What is the working definition of what it means to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a part of the church? What does it mean to be a part of the people of God, the called out people of God? And there's a lot of Christians in America right now uh, that feel like Christianity is under attack. And on on this group of of Christians, uh, they take the posture of the victim. And and so they want to push back on this threat to uh, the Christian ethic, the Christian ideals. And, and so these groups, uh, to this group, it's, you know, we need to fight back. We need to uh, hold our ground. And others feel like, well, really the way that we advance our, our cause is we just need to relax. We need to hold our principles more loosely. We need to let the popular ones override the biblical ones. But what if the problem with Christianity isn't that we're Uh, taking it too seriously? What if we're not taking it seriously enough? What if the whole problem with what's going on in the church in America with us and them is that we're really not taking what Jesus said seriously? What if we took him more seriously? What if that is what 
the problem is. And, and that's really where Jesus goes into because look, we all have our ideas. We all have our thoughts and constructs of what it means to be a Christian, what we think Jesus said and what we think he did. And, and same thing happened back then. In the context Jesus is teaching in, everyone had their opinion. There was us and them. And Jesus comes alongside. Jesus comes along and he totally blows that up. He turns everything upside down. It wasn't just that what Jesus taught was countercultural. It was counter human. And they had, they, they had their world t- turned upside down. So I just want to prepare you as we engage this series, as we dive into what does it look like? Hey, what does it mean to be a part of the church? What does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live out kingdom values? What does that look like? Man, we're going to be challenged. There, there's going to be... Um, I heard John Stott, he said it this way. He says, before the Holy Spirit is a comforter, uh, he's a disturber. He comes in and he messes things up. And, and so that may happen to you. He's going to turn things upside down, but there's hope. Uh, he's going to point us to the truly, truly blessed life. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get into it. Lord, we just thank you uh, for this time that we have. And we just thank you for your word. I just pray as we start out this new year together, In 2021, Lord Jesus, I just pray, God, that you would be with us, uh, that you would help us to understand that is what you have to say to us. And we would be, have a clear understanding, a clear vision of what you called us to do in your name. Amen. Well, in Matthew 5.1, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he went and sat down and the disciples came to him. He sat down, I'm sitting down. I'm not on a mountain, I am just in a room, but I am sitting down. And he opened his mouth and taught. Um, and he's teaching something very, like I said, counter-cultural, counter-human. Uh, in his book, a Divine Conspiracy, Dal uh, Willard, he talks about growing up in rural Missouri in the early half of the 20th century. Back then, there, where he lived, there was no electricity. They had to use kerosene lamps and uh, ice boxes and stuff that we have really no idea what he's talking about. Um, but then one day it happened, electricity showed up and uh, power lines came up. And, and in many ways, the, what was going on is they were saying, hey, repent of using this old fashioned way of doing things. Repent of ice boxes, repent of lanterns, repent of kerosene lamps and enter into this entire new way of living brought about by electricity. Well, oddly enough, not everyone changed. Not everyone saw this new life of electricity one to embrace. They didn't repent, they liked the way things were. And in essence, this is the message of Jesus. He comes to a dark place, a dark world, and he says, look, I, I, want, I want you to repent. I want you to change. I want you to change how you're living, and I want you to enter into a new kingdom. This is what he came to proclaim. This is what he came to teach. This is what he came to demonstrate. Life in the kingdom of heaven, life in the kingdom of God, living a whole new powerful way of living. The kingdom of God, he says, is here in my coming. You can experience it. Its promises won't be totally fulfilled into the future and to the day he returns. But make no mistake, the kingdom is now, this new life is possible now. And so he begins to unfold this. He, he begins to go verse after verse, after line after line. And he talks about eight different things. And again, I just have to warn you, if you hear this with an open mind and a soft heart, it will overwhelm you before it will give you hope. Um, and I want to 
encourage you because there's a real temptation to treat what Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in this next section called the Beatitudes that we're going to go through. Right now, there's eight Beatitudes, eight words of blessing. It's really tempting to see this as an a la carte menu, gravitating to the ones that affirm you and avoiding or minimizing the ones that contradict you. Again, the Holy Spirit uh, is a disturber before he is a comforter. And, and my hope is that we would throw our hands up in the air, not in, not in quitting and not in giving up, but throw our hands up in the air and run to our Savior, Jesus. And that's one of the big ideas that Jesus is getting at. Uh, he's not laying out a list of things. Hey, if you do this, then you'll enter into the kingdom. If you do these things, if you are these things, but he's saying, man, this is what my kingdom produces. It produces a people like this. Later on, if you, if you read on into chapter seven, by the way, a little tip as we're going through this, we'll be going through this for several weeks, but I would encourage you to read five through seven often, get the whole picture. And in chapter seven, he talks about how you can tell a, a tree by its fruit. And that's what he's saying here. Here's the fruit of the kingdom. Here are extensions of his grace. As you repent, embrace the kingdom of God in your life. That is the kingdom of God is his reign, his rulership. This is what it looks like. And he's talking to a mixed group. He's talking to both crowds and disciples. He's He's speaking directly to his disciples, but he's fully aware of the crowds listening in, which by the way, that's how we like to see church. Uh, when we gather on Sundays, whether it's online or in person, we, we want to speak to those of us who call ourselves disciples, but we are quite happy for those who are not yet a part to, be, to participate. And so we're glad that we're all in this together. So anyway, we're gonna look at the Beatitudes and it begins to take a look. So here's the first one. He says, in verse Three, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. And the poor spirit, poor in spirit has this idea of desperation. The idea here is of complete humility and dependence upon Jesus. You have no spiritual resources to bargain with. You have nothing to offer. You are spiritually bankrupt. Therefore, you are pleading with God for mercy. If you're familiar with AA Alcoholics Anonymous, or if you've known someone who's gone through that, the first step is admitting that you are powerless over alcohol and that your life has become unmanageable. unmanageable. And in other words, uh, those who are in AA reach the point of desperation. They realize that they can't do anything to get them out of the situation. And again, I, I hope that if this series has its effect and and if these words of Jesus has its effect, it will lead us to a place of desperation. I can't do this without him. And that's what he's saying. He's saying the poor in spirit are those who have come to the place to realize their utter dependency. They have no resources to bargain with. They are completely humble. And so the first step in, in us entering the kingdom is to reach this point to say, I cannot do this on my own. I am totally dependent upon Jesus. I am morally bankrupt, completely undone by by sin. It's as the old hymn says, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look for thee for grace, foul to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. The Rock of Ages. What does Jesus say about this person who is so desperate, who admits that they're totally spiritually, morally bankrupt? This 
person is blessed. You know what it means to be blessed? It means to be happy. It means more than being happy. It means to have fullness. And I I want you to see the dichotomy here. The person who has fullness is the one who is totally empty before God. It's only when you are poor in spirit. It's only when you come to the end of your rope that you are a candidate for receiving the grace of God. The Beatitudes show us this upside down world of Jesus. You know, the, um, to be first is to be last. To be the greatest is to be the servant. To, to live is to die. Jesus is saying the way to fullness is total emptiness. Total emptiness. Not being full of yourself, being empty. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn, not rant, but those who mourn, who first grieve over their own sin and brokenness. This can be seen so clearly in Isaiah 6, verse 5. And Isaiah, he comes into the presence of God and he doesn't like puff his chest and say, oh yeah, you know, I belong here. He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell, this is important too, in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. It's one thing to be poor in spirit and to intellectually understand your brokenness. It's another thing, though, to mourn over it, to have an emotional response, just to know it up here, but to know it in your heart. Godly grief is a good thing. In fact, Romans 12 says, for our love to be genuine, we must learn to hate what is evil, grieve what is evil, mourn over what is evil. This also means lamenting over the sin and sorrow of the world, not condemning the sin of the world, right? So we we can mourn, but we don't condemn. We don't say like, you know, I'm glad I'm not like them, you know, oh, those people over there. No, but but we mourn, we we grieve, just like Jesus did. He, in Matthew 23, he mourned over Jerusalem. He grieved, he wept over Jerusalem. We should do the same. It says that they will be comforted, that he will turn our mourning into dancing. He will exchange our sackcloth for a garment of praise. He will turn our ashes of grief into oil of gladness. So we are those who mourn, but we don't stay in this coward place. We don't stay in this, more, this mourning place, but this mourning leads to actually rejoicing. We mourn over personal sin, but we learn to trust in Jesus who paid the ransom price, that he would bind the brokenhearted, that he would give rest to the weary. We grieve the, what is going on in our world, but we take courage that he has come to save. And in the midst of dark circumstances, we can rejoice that we are sons and daughters of God and that he will right every wrong. He will wipe every tear. He will bring about newness of life. And then he goes on, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. This isn't being wimpy. This is not being a pushover. This is not being indecisive or timid. In fact, timidity, if we had the time to talk about it, I'd explain how that is really a form of pride, thinking too much of yourself. That's not where we're at. Meekness is not just personality either. You know, some are easygoing, some are more intense. Meekness goes way, way deeper than that. Meekness is this. Meekness is a controlled desire to see the interests of others advance more than their own. Meekness, lowly, gentleness, it's humility. Uh, um, I love the game of baseball. I grew up playing the game of baseball. I love watching the game of baseball. Um, And there's a play 
uh, in the game of baseball, if you're new to it, the, the batter may get assigned from the third base coach and he may get assigned to bunt. And what you do when you bunt is you position your bat in such a way that when the ball comes, you, you know, barely hit it down the third base line or right in front of the, the home plate or to the, whatever, you, you bunt it and you intentionally get yourself out so that the runner can advance. This is what meekness is. This is what it means. It means to be okay with sacrifice. It's, it means okay to allow others to take a higher place. So let me just ask you, college student, when's the last time you bunted for a roommate? Husbands, when's the last time you bunted for your wife? Young person, when's the last time that you've bunted for a single mom who's just trying to get by? Prideful people swing for the fences. Meek people are willing to bunt the ball, let, them get, let themselves get out for the sake of others. This is the way of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty nine. 29, he says, come to me, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Check this out, for I am gentle and lowly, I am meek, and you will find rest in your souls. This is all throughout the Bible. We see this in Abraham. Abraham and Lot, they had... Um, they, they decided to go their separate ways in, in uh, Genesis 12. And Lot defer, excuse me, Abraham deferred to Lot. Lot, you choose. I'll let you choose. I won't, I won't push myself to the front of the line. I'll let you choose. I will defer to you. That's what meek people do. Jesus, of course, did that. This is fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of living by the Spirit. This is not a personality type. This is, the, this is the life of the kingdom. This is the fruit of the kingdom. This is the fruit of the Spirit. We are to be clothed in meekness. This is Paul's instruction to the church in Colossians, this very, very racially diverse church, socially, economically diverse, uh, they were needing to bear with each other, to have compassion and love. And he says, clothe yourself with meekness. We need to be a meek people. It's to characterize our witness. If you love talking about the gospel, which I do, I hope you do too. It is to character, according to 1 Peter 3.15, being a meek people characterizes our witnesses. Materialism, worldly thinking, says grab all you can while you, while you can. But check this out. It, Jesus says it is the meek, it is the meek who will inherit the land, meaning they'll possess everything. Um, throughout the scriptures, the relationship with God uh, was there's the, the land, the promised land was a big deal. Taking possession of this land was critical to their national pride and confidence that God was, was in them. This was their inheritance. This provoked a group of, of Israelites to be zealots. And they thought they were to take the land of God by force because they had been exiled, but then they were able to return to their land. But even though they were in their land, the Romans still occupied, they still ruled over them. They still had their thumb on um, on top of them, they, 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 so they were in this humiliated place. And the zealots, uh, they came along saying, okay, we're gonna overthrow Rome. And some of his disciples, Jesus' disciples were zealots, and there are a lot of zealots around. And if you read throughout the gospels all the way until when Jesus ascends, you'll see this come out. The, 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 the people trying to make him king so they'll take over the big bad Romans. Jesus was undermining this by saying, no, 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 no. It's not the forceful that will inherit the land. It is the meek 
that will inherit the land. This is so relevant to our culture of us and them when we wanna be holy his. This is so relevant because we are tempted to use shame, to use coercion, to use power and fear to take back the land, to take back our country or to achieve his righteousness. Political power in the kingdom of God is of no value. That's what he's saying, left or right. You know, there's a Senate seat up. You know, we got to get the Senate seat wherever, you know, if you're a Democrat, we got we to gain the, the, the Senate. And, you know, if you're the Republicans, we got to keep the Senate. Man, political power has no value in the kingdom of God. It's, it's the meek that inherit the lamb. And then he goes on, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We all have a sense of right and wrong. You were born with it. Uh, as soon as your sister or your brother got more ice cream than you, you said, that's not fair. You have a sense of justice. You have a sense of righteousness. You have a sense of what makes you right. Righteousness, right before God, right before others. Self-righteousness is I make myself right. But that is not the kind of righteousness that will make us satisfied. It is a hunger and thirst after God's righteousness. So on one hand, Jesus is clearly affirming this desire that we have for things to be right, for things to be just. Um, but he's not affirming uh, what is just in us. So just because we think something is, this is justice, this is righteousness, he's not affirming that because he's clearly saying, as you read on in Matthew, even in the Sermon on the Mount and other places uh, in the Bible, it is God's justice. It is his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. If you seek after your own righteousness, you will not be satisfied. But if you seek after his righteousness, he's the bread of life. Anyone who comes to him will never, he says in, in John 6, never will grow hungry, will never go thirsty. You will be satisfied in him. So it's the righteousness, the sense of righteousness, the sense of justice that we all feel. The Bible's affirming that. But we need to go to the Bible. We need to go to his justice, his righteousness. If we seek this, we'll never grow hungry will never go thirsty. And this may not happen today or tomorrow. Again, in this passage, there is a, a future element to the, to the promises as well as a present reality that we, we have the kingdom, but it won't, uh, there's a future reality to this. He, he says that you, you will not be these things. So we may not fully receive the benefits of the kingdom until that day, that day where he wipes every tear, where there's no death and disease. In the meantime, we wait. But even in the waiting, even in the waiting, when we have confidence in, who, in what Jesus is saying to us, and we have confidence that, yes, we are sons and daughters and we have received the kingdom, we can have joy right now, even though the, the justice and righteousness and, and pain and suffering that will go away in his righteousness and justice come up, we can have joy now in the waiting. It's just like my kids, you know, you know, before Christmas Day and the presents were being opened, the days before, they had joy and anticipation of what would happen. And brothers, and by brothers and sisters, this day will happen and we can have joy right now. So we don't need to fret as David said, uh, David, yeah, David in Psalm says in uh, Psalm 37, he says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. And we think that way. We think like people are getting away with something and you know, injustice is everywhere. He says, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. He says this, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice 
as the noonday. Then he goes on, he says, blessed are the merciful. Grace is receiving a benefit I don't deserve. Mercy is a taking away of pain that I do deserve. Mercy is similar to the forgiveness is why Jesus says, you know, he'll say later, forgive and you will be forgiven. Here he says, give mercy and mercy will be given to you. So don't retaliate. Don't give people what they deserve. Don't go after revenge. You know, don't just say, I'm going to get them. You know, show people mercy. And what's interesting here about this blessing is he doesn't specify who we should give mercy to. In other words, we give mercy to everyone. We give mercy to everyone because there is room at the cross. Now, don't hear in order to get mercy, you have to give it. God doesn't work that way. But he understands. He understands our tendency to disconnect the vertical from the horizontal. We, we tend to think like, you know, I can be okay with God, yet utterly despise and mistreat and shame and condemn other human beings. God's saying, no, look, look, if you, you know, the, the, the vertical has to make its way out to horizontal. So be merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, not just on the outside, but on the inside. This means being a single-minded person, uh, free from the tyranny of hypocrisy and a divided self. This is being a person of integrity. A person of an integrity is being a whole person the whole time, not giving into a divided self. It means that you can be transparent. You know, we're not just, you know, church people on Sunday and we're people of the world every day, the other day. We're not just coming into a setting like a small group and just putting on a, an act, but we're real with each other. We're pure in heart. We're peacemakers. Peacemakers is a divine work. Jesus made peace for us by killing the hostility, it says in Ephesians 2, through the cross. He made peace by, by the blood. Peacemaking is the family business. It's no wonder why he says, blessed are the peacemakers, because for theirs are the sons of God. Theirs are the daughters of God. This is why peacemakers, we, as Christians, we should pursue making peace. Pursue making peace by proclaiming, and listen, demonstrating with our lives the love of Christ. Now, don't confuse peacemaking with appeasement, uh, with avoidance, you know, just trying to make everyone happy. The hill of avoidance is not the hill that we climb. Like, let's just make sure, you know, let's not talk about anything controversial. Rather, we want to climb the hill of conflict, uh, the hill where there's pain and struggle and misunderstanding and sacrifice and forgiveness and disagreement. And make no mistake, if you climb this hill, you climb this hill of, of peacemaking, you're going to have relational shrapnel. You're going to have people who malign you and persecute you, which is where Jesus goes next. He says, look, people are going to revile you. People are going to persecute you on my account. If you live out this kingdom dynamic, you will be reviled. You will be persecuted. You will be maligned. But then he says this. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets. They're gonna persecute you. Jesus lays out for us the blessed life. What does it mean to be holy his? In a world of us and them, what does it look like to be holy his? To be a part of his people, to, to enter into the kingdom, to express what his people are like. We're going to look totally different. It's going to feel awkward. It's going to feel weird. It reminds me, I was driving out. This is years ago. I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, I was driving out to this wedding and 
I was in a, a, a rural part of Illinois, and I remember going to a gas station. I'm all dressed up, you know, suit, you know. And I go to this, every, you know, the people at the gas station, I mean, it's this old, you know, everybody's wearing like overalls or sweatpants, and, and I'm sitting there in this nice suit pumping gas. And I fe- to be honest with you, I felt out of place. And I remember like actually like feeling like I needed to explain myself, right? Like I don't really dress like this. I'm going to a wedding, you know, you know what I mean? And it hit me as I, why did I feel so awkward? Why did I feel so awkward dressed the way I was? And, and, when, and it hit me. I wasn't dressed for where I was. I was dressed for where I'm going. And this is what Jesus is saying. Look, these are, these are kingdom values, and they are at odds with the world. In fact, we'll learn this later. They are at odds with the secular world and they are at odds with the re- religious world. And Jesus is going to say, don't be like them. If we live this out, we are not going to be friends with the current culture. We're not going to be friends with the religious culture. We're going to, be, we're going to stick out. And that's what Jesus wants. And he wants to use us. He wants to use frail, messed up you and I. He says, look, I want you to repent of your old way. And I want you to enter into this whole new life. This, is, this means three things for three different groups of people. These are words of celebration if you are a disciple. If you are a disciple, these promises come to you and saying, look, you can rejoice when you mourn. You can rejoice when you are reviled and persecuted and you take the low road or you take the high road and not the low road where you lower yourself so that other people can be blessed in front of you. These are words of invitation if you're part of the crowd. I mean, Jesus comes in and he doesn't say it's, it's the perfect people. It's not the, the rich and the wealthy and, the, and those who are all put together. This is for everyone. This is words of invitation if you're a part of the, cr- the crowd. And this can be words of transformation for the repentant. And that's what I hope. I hope that we would see that this is not some ethic to live up to so Jesus will be happy with it. Actually, he wants to do the opposite. He wants to show us that we can never be good enough. But if we repent and turn to him, this life will bear fruit in our life just like a tree bears fruit. And that's what he's looking for. So here's what we, I want us to do. I want us to end by doing something a little bit odd. I want us to rejoice. Um, this passage ends with, this whole passage is littered with like, this is the blessed life. And then he says that we should rejoice. And so that's what I want us to do. I want us to rejoice. Before we do that though, I just want to give an invitation to anyone who's like, man, I want in on that. Like, I just want to be a part of that. If that's you, I just want you at the count of three just to raise your hand. And what you're doing is you're saying to yourself or maybe someone else in the room, or if you're um, in an auditorium, or if you're by yourself, watching this or with a few friends, you're saying to other people that, hey, I believe in Jesus and I wanna be a part of this called out community. And all you do is you just repent and say, Jesus, I don't have the, the resources to pull this off and I'm running to you. I'm running to you for help. If that's you, on the count of three, I just want you to raise your hand. One, two, three, just go ahead and raise your hand. God, I just thank you for your mercy in our life. I thank you that, uh, Lord, that we may experience trial and persecution for following you for a season, but we have, we have life evermore for, for millions and billions and trillions of years. We thank you for your plan. We thank you for your invitation that we can be a part of your community. Amen. Let's rejoice. Amen.